Dvorak's Seventh Symphony is one of those works that tends to be admired by musicians and critics, but perhaps not quite so much loved by audiences. It's hardly neglected, but set it beside the next two symphonies, well, it doesn't have a title, unlike number nine, the famous New World Symphony. Titles always help. And it isn't quite as open and immediately appealing as Symphony No. 8, a work that's so full of the sounds of nature and overflowing with wonderful tunes. Perhaps the Seventh Symphony could be described as a bit more abstract. But the Seventh Symphony can also inspire love as well as admiration. It's difficult to resist music as generously, warmly lyrical as this. That opening woodwind folk hymn is entirely self-contained as a musical unit, but then one very singable idea seems to flow on into the next, and from that we move straight into this somewhat Wagnerian idea. And then? So here in the second movement of Dvorak's Seventh Symphony, we have plenty of striking, stirring ideas, yet at the same time the music is also seamless. 
and that in itself could be a problem for the first-time listener. In the New World Symphony, and to a large extent in Symphony No. 8, the tunes stand out, often as, as I said before, very self-contained ideas. It's easy to take them away and hum them or whistle them. Here, in the Seventh Symphony, the themes are often more open-ended. They're the kind of ideas that cry out for continuation, and you often have the sense of them handing on to something else. But that's one of the things that makes the ideas so eminently symphonic. In classical and romantic symphonies, the crucial sense is of movement, of a journey from A to B, or from A through B to A transformed. As in a novel with the main characters, the themes are changed by the experience. Dvorak was especially concerned to create this kind of symphony in number seven. In 1884, he'd been deeply impressed by a performance of the new Third Symphony by his friend and hugely influential champion, Johannes Brahms. The Third Symphony is a work that right from the start is always on the move. It's richly melodic, yet they're melodies that develop, change, create momentum. You have a sense there in Brahms's Third Symphony of a long melodic line, yet at the same time it's built on one tiny motive, which immediately begins to transform. Dvorak was very much impressed by this kind of thinking. Then that same year, 1884, he was elected an honorary member of the London Philharmonic Society, and the Society marked the event by inviting Dvorak to compose a new symphony for them. It got Dvorak's mind working fast. Brahms was very encouraging, especially for Dvorak to follow his own path, and this was important because Dvorak's previous symphony, number six, was clearly inspired by Brahms's second symphony. In fact, in places it's almost close to a tribute. But Brahms, gesturing to the manuscript of Dvorak's sixth symphony, told him, my idea of your new symphony is quite different from this. In other words, it shouldn't be his idea at all, but Dvorak's own. The beginning of Dvorak's 7th symphony doesn't sound at all like Brahms's 3rd, yet there is one similarity in the way Dvorak creates ideas that invite development. They're full of potential, or musical DNA, like a seed. Listen to the opening. You can feel the growth, the development at work. Thank you. 
let's look a little more closely at those workings. The first theme on violas and cellos contains several potent elements, musical seeds. First of all, there's the rocking triple time figure, almost entirely within one narrow interval, a third. That little rhythmic kick at the beginning, those two faster notes, dadalum, soon turns out to have a life of its own, which rapidly grows more athletic. That's the theme complete, yet it ends on a tense dissonance. It's emphatically not a neat ending of a tune. It demands continuation. It seems to say, where next? Let's just play through that opening again. Perhaps you can sense more clearly how it grows, builds up a kind of musical life force. So there's quite an intellectual process going on here. But at the same time, it's not just abstract, it's also highly expressive. There's a tense, nervous energy, a dark colouring, sense of striving that could soon turn tragic. And before long, you sense that that's exactly where the music's heading. So here we have a symphony that's emotional, tuneful, even if the tunes are somehow or other incomplete and embedded in a larger argument. But at the same time, that argument feels very logical. Dvorak has taken Brahmsian symphonic thinking, and even some of his stylistic mannerisms, and turned it into something that feels very different from Brahms. We've heard how the first movement launches itself. At the beginning, we also heard how the slow second movement starts on its more lyrical journey, but always with the same basic organic thinking. Even that little self-contained folk hymn that begins the slow movement has a role to play in the larger argument. Context is everything. We don't hear it again until the very end of the movement. It returns, or rather emerges from the afterglow of the climax, on a solo oboe to wrap up the movement, almost like a formula in a fairy tale. And so I end my story.
Even there, that once self-contained theme is now absorbed into the argument. The dying echoes of the oboe's final phrase are repeated and grow into the next phrases. We can well imagine Dvorak growing in confidence by the end of this movement. The next movement, the scherzo, takes quite a risk. It draws on Dvorak's Czech nationalist language, the very elements that were sometimes considered quite contradictory to pure symphonic writing. Dvorak incorporates elements of the Czech folk dance called the Furiant. This sets two kinds of three-time against each other. The bass and cello have a counter-theme in a fast three. It's a sort of waltz tempo. But the top line, the violins, is in a different kind of three-time, half the speed of the lower voices. That's very characteristic of the Furiant. You put those two ideas together and they create a tension where one line, or pulse, tugs against the other. It creates tremendous rhythmic tension. Once again, this music is very tuneful, the folk element stands out here, yet it's also seamless. The tunes don't simply begin and end, but hand on to the next one, like runners in a relay race. Dvorak intensifies these rhythmic conflicts, the tug as I called it, as the music develops. It creates tremendous drive and excitement. In fact, this is one of the most gripping and original symphonic scherzos since Beethoven. Even the central trio section is not really a separate unit, as they often are in classical and romantic symphonies. The scherzo comes to what seems like an emphatic conclusion. The tempo drops slightly for the trio, yet the momentum of the scherzo spills over into the trio. And the seemingly new melodic ideas are based on very similar rhythmic figures to those we've heard in the scherzo. The argument continues. <laughs> So we have three very successful movements. The music is fresh, highly expressive, melodically catchy, yet also sustained by an unfailing sense of symphonic purpose and drama. Now, many fine 19th century symphonies founder when it comes to the finale. 
The example of Beethoven created a bit of a problem here. Beethoven shifted the weight of the classical symphony from the first movement to the finale, and in doing so he created a mighty precedent, but one which was rather difficult to follow, and not all composers succeeded. But there's absolutely no letdown in Dvorak's Symphony No. 7. That tragic quality that we sense in the first movement, and intermittently in the second and third, comes right to the fore again, only now with an even greater sense of urgency. There's one probably conscious tribute to Brahms there, and especially to Brahms's Third Symphony, the work that inspired Dvorak so much. There, at the end of that extract, that low string and woodwind chorale is rather like a similar idea near the start of the finale of Brahms's Third. But again, the flavour is quite different in Dvorak, and it leads off in a different direction. Brahms ultimately arrives at a gentle, hushed autumnal ending. Dvorak moves on to something much more dramatic. The impetus again is very strong here, especially when it comes to the rhythmic dimension. This is another inheritance of Dvorak's love of his native folk music. Often in Slavic folk music there's more rhythmic variety than in its Western European equivalents. In Dvorak's finale, it sweeps the music forward. Here in the second theme, we're carried from exaltation straight into tragic reversal. <laughs> Dvorak keeps back one marvellous dramatic surprise for the end. It's the kind of twist that leaves you wanting to go back and hear the entire work all over again. But in case you don't know the symphony, I won't spoil it for you. I hope I've conveyed some sense of what a triumph Dvorak's Seventh Symphony is. It's magnificently sustained, as you'll hear in a moment. As you get to know this symphony, you'll appreciate its mastery more and more. At the same time, you'll find yourself humming the tunes. The theme of the third movement, the scherzo, is one of those superb earworms that keeps coming back to me again and again, usually when I'm in a hurry to get somewhere. 
but the breadth of this achievement, its successful from whichever angle you choose to view it, is unique in Dvorak's symphonic output. Dvorak's Seventh Symphony may not be quite as instantly lovable as its symphonic near neighbours, but for me, and for quite a few other people, it's the most compelling and definitely the most stirring.